Good morning. Scripture reading this morning is from Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as, as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rachel. All right, as we turn our attention to God's word, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray. Father, already we've encountered your praiseworthiness, aspects of your character that we've seen that lift up our hearts towards you, your glory, your love, your forgiveness, your mercy, uh, your truth, your kindness, your majesty, all these things. But we want even more. <laughs> your spirit makes us hungry for more, and so we pray now, in your word, help us to see things of you that we have not yet seen or have not seen in a while. Refresh our hearts, stir our hearts, bear fruit in our lives. And so, Father, Son, and Spirit, come and make this time profitable, transformative, glorifying to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you were to write a letter to God, what would you say? I wonder. Well, some kids were asked that question and as you may know, their responses were compiled together some years ago in an endearing little book called Children's Letters to God. And many of these letters are honest, and you got to love it, to the point, like this one. Dear God, if I was God, I wouldn't be as good at it. Keep it up, Michelle. <laughs> and others are quite funny. In fact, in a way that only kids can be funny, like this letter from a little girl named Joyce, Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. <laughs> Bringing your disappointments to God at an early age, right? It's a good practice. And other letters are sweet, but actually profound. Here's one from Nan. Dear God, I bet it is very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. That's pretty real, right? Here's another. Dear God, I love you because you give us what we need to live. But I wish you would tell me why you made it so we have to die. Daniel, age eight. Friends, if, if, if you were to write a letter to God, what 
would you say? But here's another question. If God were to write a letter to you, what do you think it would say? See, in a sense, we don't have to wonder. That's because you may or may not know that 21 out of the 27 books in the New Testament were actually originally letters. True, they were written centuries ago by a specific author to a specific audience about specific topics, but they were also meant to be read and received by followers of Christ for generations, meant to be read and received even by us as God's personal word to his people. In other words, as a letter to you from God. One of these New Testament letters is Colossians, which we're going to be studying and looking at closely on Sunday mornings this fall, starting today, starting right now. I hope you'll join us and come back. As we heard in our reading that Rachel brought to us a moment ago, it's a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul together with his ministry associate, Timothy. It was written about 60 AD, so a long time ago, to young Christians in the city of Colossae. That's an ancient city that was located in what is now modern-day Turkey, a church had been started there only a few years earlier by a Colossian man by the name of Epaphras. His name was mentioned in the reading in verse 7. And Paul is now writing them from a prison in Rome. So as we start this morning, we're looking at the opening section of Colossians, this letter, just the first eight verses, and we learn about three things, three points that we'll look at. Number one, the priority of thanks. Number two, the wonder of the gospel. Number three, the stories of ordinary people. The priority of thanks, the wonder of the gospel, and the stories of ordinary people. Number one, the priority of thanks. As we read this, what stands out immediately in this letter is that Paul opens with a word of thanksgiving. He writes in verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of all the love you have for all God's people. Paul, give thanks to God for the Colossians. So, immediately, let's apply it. This passage invites us to consider this question. Do you thank God for other people, other followers of Christ, on a routine basis? It's worth noting because if we're honest with ourselves, we know we live in a cynical age, which sort of sucks the life out of gratitude. We, we tend to notice more what's wrong than what's right about people. We all tend to have critical and, and judgmental hearts. I know I do. But do you see how the grace of God ignites in our hearts a genuine delight in other people as we're learning to love others as God has loved you? 
or as we're learning to see other people as God in his grace sees you compassionately, charitably, joyfully. But Paul doesn't just express his thanks privately to God in prayer. He does do that. But it's not just secret thanks. He actually tells the Colossians personally and publicly right that he gives thanks for them. And so this leads us to consider this. Do you tell people that you thank God for them in order to encourage them and to build them up? You need to say that to someone today. I thank God for you. But maybe you're thinking, well, 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 what should I thank God for them for? Uh, What do I say? Well, let's look at the passage again. Notice the the special focus of Paul's thanksgiving. He says, we always thank God for you. Why? Verse 4, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people. So what specifically about his Colossian brothers and sisters does Paul give thanks to God for their faith and their love? These two elements, of course, lie at the heart of the Christian faith. In other words, how do we know that someone is truly in Christ? Uh, What are the marks of a true Christian according to Scripture Well, what do you know? It's not your personality or your politics or even just your verbal profession of the things that you believe. Rather, it's faith in Christ Jesus. That is, putting your whole life's trust in Jesus Christ, who died in your place for your salvation, paying the price that that you deserve to pay for your sins, being loved by God in Christ in an unimaginable way, faith in Jesus. And second, it's the love that you have for all God's people. That is the the love, the, the, the practical, sacrificial service that you extend to fellow brothers and sisters. This is a mark of true Christianity, sacrificial service to fellow brothers and sisters. But notice Paul says to all God's people. And so this is love and service and relationship, especially extended across all kinds of boundaries and barriers that we find in our fallen lives. National and economic and cultural and political barriers. See, this is love in the spirit, Paul says in verse 8. It's not a hollow sentimentality. It's not just a a natural uh, temperament or, or personality of kindness. This is a supernatural thing that God produces in your heart to sacrifice on behalf of another person. It's indiscriminate, unhesitating love that comes from Christ extended especially to those who might be different from yourself. And Paul says, it's your faith and it's your love in particular, dear Colossian Christian friends, that I always thank God for. So, one more time, friends, do you regularly thank God for the faith 
and for the love of those around you? And then do you tell those people that you thank God for them in that way? Which is to say, do you say, I thank God for you, not just for what you give to me, but for what you give to God, the trust that he deserves from your heart, your faith. And I thank God for you, not for what you do for me, but what I see you doing for others, your sacrificial service, your love. Who do you need to thank today for their faith and for their love? And what would it look like for us to be a community that did this as a regular corporate practice? For it was just an ordinary thing to hear those very words. I thank God for you, and this is why. For your faith and for your love. Because you're just learning to notice with God's eyes all that he's doing. And it it, it produces a delight and a joy in your heart that makes you just want to speak about it. If you've been around in the city long enough, you know that in our metro stations whether these audible public service recordings or these printed messages all about, that there's this public safety campaign that reminds us, if you see something, say something, right? If you see something that's a little bit off, you got to say something. Just, just go ahead. Don't doubt yourself. Just go ahead and, and tell somebody that that looks off. Well, guess what? In the church and in life, if you see something that's on, say something. Tell somebody. Tell your neighbor. If you see something that's good and beautiful and right and just and true, if you see evidence of of faith, of unusual confidence in God's promises, if you see someone just eking out the smallest mustard seed of faith, if you see them daring to love, you see them giving up of their time and of their life and of their energy and of their friendship, say something. If you see something, say something. And how do you think our community would grow if we did this habitually? I think we would become more a place of appreciation, of encouragement, of of joy, right? Every conversation is a party. Of security. Because you, you, you are reminded on a routine basis that someone actually is for you. Because it was only a few minutes ago that I heard you tell me that you thank God for me. Who do you need to thank today for their faith and for their love? And notice how for Paul, this was the priority. It's the first thing he says. It's the first way that he has learned to see these Colossian friends. It's the first thing that comes to his mind. It takes faith to be able even to look past people's flaws, to look past their sins, to look past the ways they hurt you, which isn't to say that you don't heal and deal with and process those wounds. We're not saying tuck it aside or to deny those things, but in faith we learn to see them first as saints, family members, brothers and sisters, the holy people in Colossae, in D.C., in Grace Meridian Hill, in this neighborhood, the holy people of God whom we love. It's a priority on the apostles' mind and heart. Is it for you 
and me. I think the grace of God teaches us to relate to one another in that way with a priority of thanks upon our hearts and upon our lips. Which brings us to the second point, the wonder of the gospel. There's a second thing that we find in these opening paragraphs of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and that's a rich focus on the gospel. He brings this word up while talking, to the Coloss- talking about the, the Colossians' faith and love. He reminds them that the source or the fuel of their faith and love is, in fact, the hope of the gospel. In other words, where does this faith and love come from? Verse 5. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. He writes, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's Grace. Paul is turning their attention to the power of the gospel at work amongst them. But what is the gospel? What does that word even mean, gospel? Well, it's an old Greek word that refers to a public announcement of good news. A public announcement of good news. And so when a king or a Caesar was installed... Well, that's good news, gospel. Or when a great military victory is announced, that's good news, gospel. So when the New Testament uses the term, it refers to an announcement about what God has done for us in Christ. What is gospel? What is good news? It's that God, by his own loving initiative, sent his son Jesus into our broken and fallen world to live and then to die and then to live again in order to make all things new, starting with you. And that's good news. The good news of the Christian faith. Jesus came to die for you, to forgive your sins. He came to adopt you into his family. He came to wipe every tear. He came to die and rise again to conquer every evil. He came to bring dead things to life forever. This is gospel truth. What Paul refers to as the true message or the word of truth. Notice four things in this passage that tells us more about this gospel of Jesus Christ. First, the gospel is news. It's news. So verse 5, you've already heard in the true message of the gospel. It's a message that's given, an announcement, stating the facts about what God has done in Christ. Growing up, my mom used to flip through the newspaper and sometimes make these little clippings and put them around the house. Sometimes she would read them to me, and especially, she loved to read this column, uh, this response and advice column that was written by a woman named Ann Landers. Some of you may remember her. 
It was a column that came out giving people advice about conflicts in their relationships or, or decisions that need to be made. And this was advice that she would give. This is what you should do. This is how you should respond. This is the responsibility you have. This is how you should work. Listen, the gospel is not advice. It is not counsel as to what you need to do. The gospel is an announcement of what Christ has done. Ray Bakke, a theologian and missiologist, puts it this way. There's a fundamental difference between Jesus Christ and Ann Landers. She offers advice. We offer news. Advice by nature of the case is something you must do. Once again, the gospel is something that Jesus has done in living and dying and rising again for you. It's not something that you need to accomplish. It's something that you hear, that you put your trust in, that you receive. And the language that's been used over the centuries to describe our posture, it's something that should give us rest because finally someone has told us you can get off the treadmill of life and you can fall into the arms of God who can save you at last. And this brings us to the second thing we learn about the gospel. The gospel is news and therefore the gospel is Grace, that's just a word that means gift, right? And we see it at the end of verse 6, God's grace. See, this is something that Christ has done for us, not something you need to do. You just need to receive the gift, a present, open it, say thank you for it, and that's it. This is how the gospel works. As commentator and theologian Dick Lucas said about this passage, No single word more accurately defines the essence of the Christian gospel than grace. The heart of the gospel concerns not our commitment to God, but his free and merciful offer to commit himself to us in Christ, despite the fact that we never cease to be undeserving of such a privilege. Do you know the story of Jesus as an offer of grace, a free extension of God's kindness and lavish love to you. This is the heart of the gospel. Thirdly, the gospel is power. Because when you get a certain kind of gift, it it can change your life forever. When, When you find God in this way, knowing that at last you don't need to uh, bribe him for his favor. You don't need to persuade him that you're worthy of his love. No, all of this is given to you freely, unmerited, by his kindness through his son. That's a power that changes things. Look at verse 6. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You see, the picture that Paul is painting here of a a gospel, of a public announcement about Christ and what he's done that almost is such a living power that's been unleashed in the world that he describes it almost like a plant that's growing or, or a tree 
or a farm or an orchard or a forest, right? It's a living thing that's expanding and growing by its own self-generated power, and it's changing people's lives and changing the world around it. The gospel is a spiritual power that transforms, that brings to life everything that it touches and every place that it inhabits. Which is what Paul says in, verse, in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, in the way that he describes the gospel there. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul points out the way in which this gospel has changed the lives of the Colossians. Some of you can testify to the same thing. The way in which the radical love of God in Christ, his forgiving love, his strengthening love, his lifting up love, his humbling love has changed your life and made you new. And the way that you can testify to the ways that you've seen this same gospel extending across the world, going from people's lives, even working into social structures, making places and institutions more just, more righteous, now in part, one day in whole. A gospel that changes not only you and me, but indeed our whole world. And that's why finally Paul can describe gospel as hope. The gospel is news. The gospel is power. The gospel is, sorry, the gospel first is news, and then it's also grace, and then it's power, and finally the gospel is hope. Look at verse 5. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel Paul is talking about the way in which this announcement of what Jesus has done for us gives us confidence to face the future, which is what hope is, right? It's a future-oriented faith that believes that Jesus has so secured my tomorrow that I can live with faith, freedom, and radical sacrificial love today. To say that Jesus, in his resurrection, has so secured my eternity, I'm going to live forever, come what may, that we can say together with Paul in, first, in Philippians chapter 1, to die is gain, because upon death I will find myself in heaven, finally united face to face, face to face with Jesus himself. You see Paul mention heaven here in passing in this passage, the hope of heaven which arms you with confidence to live very sacrificially now because you know this life isn't all there is for you or for you to live with the hope of future resurrection, which means that God is not only going to take you to heaven, but one day he's going to bring heaven down to earth and he's going to make everything here right and new and forever, including our broken bodies that today are, are prone to decay and dying and disease. And some of you are struggling with this today, the uncertainty of your physical state. Jesus says, don't worry. If you're in me, you're going to live forever. I'm going to give you a new body, a new physical existence, and you will be able to sing and laugh and dance like you've never sang and laughed and danced ever before. Because I'm going to give you the hope 
of resurrection. And note that this is precisely what it is that Paul says springs forward a kind of faith and love that Paul gives thanks for. He says it's precisely this hope that leads us to trust God more, to give us the power to love more generously and more sacrificially because we know we've got nothing to lose. The gospel brings hope that fuels our faith and our love, and that means if the gospel never runs out, then our hope never runs out. If our hope never runs out, then our faith and our love will never run out. And if our faith and our love never run out, if you see something, you say something, then our gratitude and our joy shared in community will never run out. So how do you want to become a Thanksgiving-sharing kind of church, people, life? Go to the gospel. Start there. Plumb the depths of what Christ has done for you. If you're today and you're hearing about the gospel, maybe for the first time, maybe Christianity isn't brand new to you, but something is clicking for you. Maybe today is the day for you to receive this gift, for you to say to God, thank you. I believe this. I can't save myself. I, I, I can't atone for my sins. I can't make my life right. But what I can do is say thank you for a gift that was given to me, uh, for news about something that was done for me that I can't do for myself. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death, his resurrection. Thank you for your love and giving it to me. I believe, I throw my life, trust upon this Jesus, and I receive his love, and I look forward to the way in which that itself will generate in my life power to be changed, to look more like Jesus, and to begin to live a life of faith and of love for all God's people in a way that others notice and give thanks to you, God, for what you're doing in my life. Who doesn't want that story? Who doesn't want that to be your testimony? Whether you're new to Christ or you've been walking with him for years and years and years, friends, behold the wonder of the gospel. This is how Paul starts his letter, right? taking us into this priority of thanksgiving, but telling us where that thanksgiving is, is generated, and it's in the gospel and its extraordinary power. And we're going to close finally with our third point, stories of ordinary people. Stories of the way that the gospel in Colossae has been working through ordinary people and in ordinary people. See, there's a, a fascinating detail about this letter that, that I haven't mentioned yet. And, and it's this, that for all of his affection, for all his prayers, and for all his thanks for the Colossian brothers and sisters that he's addressing here in this letter, the apostle Paul actually never met them in person. He doesn't actually know them personally. So, how did Paul come to know so much about them in, in such a way that made his heart just leap with affection and love and joy and prayer for these faraway brothers and sisters? Verse 4, we have heard of your faith and love. Well, from where, Paul? Verses 7 and 8, Epaphras our dear fellow servant, 
who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. How did Paul know about these Colossian sisters and brothers? Epaphras told, them, told him story after story of the way that God is working in their lives. We don't know the exact details, but you can, you can almost picture Epaphras sitting next to Paul. We don't know what they look like. Just try to picture it, right? Sitting there with Paul, who now is under house arrest in Rome, imprisoned for his faithfulness to the gospel. Epaphras telling him story after story. D Demas, you, you just got to know this brother Demas. The, the way that God has just convinced him that his sins are forgiven. And he's just not the same person that he used to be, Paul. He used to be this angry dude, just mad at everybody. And, and now he's befriending old ladies. And, and he's forgiving people that, that are actually his real enemies. They're trying to hurt him. But he puts up his arms ready to embrace them. And, and Paul, you, you need to see this Archicus. Maybe one day you'll get to meet him. But let me tell you about him, the way in which he just laid down his life before Jesus how frequently he repents of his sin. You don't know how proud he used to be. This isn't him. This is God at work in him. The, the way that he gives himself so much of his time and energy, not only to loving the brothers and sisters in the church, serving them, but also the people in the neighborhoods of Colossae. Paul, you should see his life. It's unbelievable. I, I, you Give God praise, Paul. Yes, yes, I will. I, I thank God for this brother that I've never met and this sister that I've never seen. I thank God because of the stories I've been told of their faith and of their love. Friends, we need to tell stories. We need to be telling stories to one another of God's work in each other's lives. We need to do this for each other's encouragement. Uh, some of us are, are, are um, wilted. Uh, some of us feel like you're maybe spiritually um, lifeless or uh, discouraged, perhaps. And you may need a number of different things, but what you may most need, and you don't even know it, is for another Christian sister or brother to come to you and say, oh my gosh, can I tell you about the amazing work of God in this person's life or in my life? And you just hear a testimony of the love of God transforming people and just little baby steps. And you don't even realize, maybe you thought you needed this or you needed that, but what you really need is another story. An encouraging word. Later in chapter 4, Paul tells the Colossians, listen, I'm, I'm sending you Tychicus and Onesimus. I'm going to send them to you. He says, quote, for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that they may encourage your hearts. They will tell you everything that is happening here. And so Paul's like, listen, Epaphras just told me all these stories about you, and I, oh my gosh, I thank God for you, for your faith and for your love. And he's like, I'm going to give you Onesimus and Tychicus, and these guys are going to then exchange, the, uh, return the favor, tell you about everything that God is doing, even here, even in prison. And 
Why? To encourage your heart so that you might be able to thank God for the evidence of faith and love even over here in Rome. This is to be the normal dynamic, gospel storytelling in the Christian community, telling stories of ways like Epaphras that we see God working in people's lives, almost like good gossip. I don't know if we can redeem that word gossip, right? But if there's a good kind that can exist, good gossip, where we're like, man, have you heard? Have you heard the way that he's been loving this neighbor? Or have you, have I told you about the the gift that she gave me? Have I told you about how much you mean to me? Have I told you my story about how God has changed my life? We need to tell the stories of other people. We need to share stories about ourselves. Our men's group is going to be touching on this theme of storytelling. Their meetings are starting tomorrow night, as Brother Michael mentioned earlier, looking at this book, Story Changer, a book about knowing our personal stories in light of God's story and then telling our stories to others. If you're a brother, I'd encourage you to be a part of that group as we learn to share our stories with one another and even know our own stories in light of God's story, but I want to encourage you, church, to share your stories. Not, not polished stories that are worthy of being, you know, broadcast by NPR. Broken, messy, real stories of God at work in real, broken, sinful lives. People that are hungry for God's grace. People that know that they don't have a chance apart from the love of God. In other words, ordinary people like you and me. Ordinary people like the people in Colossae, like Epaphras. Messy lives whose stories don't terminate with a happily ever after, but more often than not, a to be continued. And we want to invite you to share those stories, even right here on Sundays. We've talked about this as a staff and leadership of, of, of giving more space for testimonies to be shared. If you have a story that you want to share of God's work in your life, some way he's challenged you, some way that he's healed you, some way that he's still got you in that work in progress kind of state, we would love to hear that story so that you can be a part of that evidence of faith and love that redounds to the praise of Christ. We would love for your story to be part of that fuel that springs forward some of this love and this faith and this thanksgiving. Would love for these stories to be shared here, for these stories to be shared in your life group. That as you go for the first time this week, that that maybe you can share a little bit of what God's doing in your life, or maybe that just becomes a built-in part of your life group where you're putting a spotlight on, on one member of your group. Little by little, you're just hearing a little bit of each other's lives and doing this as a normal Christian practice, or maybe just in your conversations. You're sitting with another person over coffee, and you're saying, hey, uh, tell me more about you. I want to know you. What do I not know about you? Besides that Halloween costume that you told me about, what more do I need to know about you? Because, friends, the more we know our stories, the more we see the evidence of God's transforming gospel 
And the more we see the evidence of that gospel, the more that it triggers and spurs on works of love and, and, and faith. And the more that we see evidence of those things, the more that we turn up to God, we say, thank you, God. And the more we say that to God in our prayers and in our hearts, the more we turn out to each other and say, I thank God for you. Who doesn't want a community like that? A joyful, affirming, storytelling, gospel-rich community. God did that in Colossae centuries ago. He can and he is doing that again in this church, in this city, even today. Watch. He's going to do it again. Let's pray. Christ, we come to you asking that you would do your mighty work and that you would strengthen us and that you would help us to see, to see it, and to say it, and to grow in love, and to grow in faith, and to grow in thanksgiving. Make us that kind of a church. Show us more of your grace, and speak to our hearts good news. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.